Don't worry, listeners. No need to adjust your dial. This is Landline Radio. Welcome to the end of the dial at the end of the world. I'm the host, and we bring you stories too chilling and strange to be true. Right from the heart of towns where the lines between this world and the next connect. Stories from people just like you. For those long, dark, lonely nights driving down roads that never seem to end. We'll be here. And don't worry if you can't find us. We'll find you. Leyline Radio is from Dreamer Productions and can be found monthly exclusively starting in October on their Patreon feed. Follow the link in the show notes below to hear and enjoy. Welcome back, Serial Killers. It's been a long time since I've done a Serial Killer Radio Hour, but today it just felt appropriate because we have a wonderful friend of the pod back with a wonderful new project that she has just launched that I cannot wait to talk about and uh, expose all of you all to so you can go and take it in. I have Ashley Griffin back to the show because Ashley, you just published your first novel. Yay, thank you. And I'm so honored to be here. It's I love you and it's such a such a joy to be back on your podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And by the time this actually airs, it's going to be roughly almost three years to the day since you uh, uh, guested on my second episode of Dole Up and Dreams as we talked about The Little Mermaid. So like full circle, full circle. But for for some reason, anyone who has missed you so far on the show, (laughs) reintroduce yourself, tell us who you are, and tell us a little bit about this incredible book that you just launched. Thank you. So I'm Ashley Griffin. I'm a Broadway performer, writer, uh, I'm a theater journalist. I have a YouTube channel too. It's super fun. Come check it out. But this is my first novel that's ever been published. I'm very much a writer in you know theater, film, and television. I've had plays published, but this is my first novel. And let me give you the official blurb for it. Perfect. It will do it better. There's a book trailer too that's super fun. Um, okay, so the book is called The Spindle. And the spindle is the classic fairy tale Sleeping Beauty retold from the dark fairy's point of view. Set in the Celtic world of the 5th century, the fairies, elemental spirits charged with caring for the earth and all its inhabitants, are being forgotten and facing extinction. In a desperate bid for survival, sweet, sycophantic Violet, fairy of beauty, love, and dreams, breaks the fairy law and gives the barren queen a child, threatening to dismantle the future of human history. Her sister, Nor, the fairy of death, who desires to be truly loved, though she is shunned by all mankind, must right Violet's wrong and restore Princess Rose to her correct place in time before it's too late. Her plan is threatened by a prideful king desperate to maintain his power, the kind, poor gardener Arthur, whose destiny is endangered by his deep love for the princess he was never supposed to meet, and Princess Rose herself, an intelligent, passionate young woman fated to become one of the greatest rulers the land has ever known. And it's being compared more to books like The Neverending Story and A Wrinkle in Time and even a little bit of Wicked than, say, what maybe a lot of YA fantasy fair is. It's more sort of in that category, mm-hmm. um, which has been setting it apart a little bit. And I've been very honored for the comparison. Somebody, one reviewer compared me to George McDonald, which was like life made. So (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) 
So we've, I mean, we always, anytime you're on, we talk extensively the kind of historic, the historiographic idea of why we have this kind of modern contextualization of princesses. And a mm-hmm. lot of it does have to do with Disney and keeping a lot of kind of the old tales alive. But, uh, you know, <laughs> we've talked about kind of exhaustively every time you're on about princesses and things, but what was it about the Sleeping Beauty story that you found that you could really kind of cultivate new earth for to mm-hmm. give a new a new and also not kind of exhaustive version of the story that we already know? Sure. Well, there were a couple things that kind of coincided. One is um, I've obviously loved fairy tales from a very early age, but I was, I mean, I'm known as the theatrical Hermione Granger. I was the kid who would go live in the library and read like every version. I was like a little baby Joseph Campbell. And there was a giant plot hole in Sleeping Beauty that always kind of bothered me, which is if you go by a fairy tale trope that isn't stated outright, but we kind of accept that in fairy tales, everybody has one true love. Mm-hmm. That means in the fairy tale of Sleeping Beauty, her she can only be awoken by her true love who isn't born until almost a hundred years after her, mm-hmm. in which case, if the curse never happened, does that mean she would have had to live her entire life without a true love? Mm-hmm. In which case was the curse really a curse? Right. And so that idea of um, time and history and how you know connections play out always bothered me in the back mm-hmm. of my mind. Separate to that, um, I know you and I have talked a little bit about my play Snow, which um, had great success off-Broadway and is an examination of the importance and power of storytelling that sort of similarly to Cloud Atlas or The Hours follows three disparate storylines that all revolve around the fairy tale Snow White. Well, the origin of that play is, is actually involved probably the most painful experience I've ever had as a writer which is that play originally came about because I was commissioned to write a children's piece about Snow White. And I decided to sort of write the version of Snow White that I'd always wanted. And I was left in this weird place where it wasn't really a children's play, but it wasn't really an adult play. So we did some development on it. And very long story short, it ended in the worst experience I've ever had as a writer. There was... um, there was not the the development that was supposed to happen as part of this just flat out didn't happen. Mm-hmm. The things that I knew I needed answers to, we never were able to explore. And I was left sort of feeling very depressed about it. Long story short, I ended up being like, what do I actually want to write about? And I turned it into the very adult play of snow that we have today. Mm-hmm. But part of that was my personal least favorite part of the snow white story, not meaning I don't like it by any no. means is um, the part where, where, where she's just sort of hanging out with the dwarves. I love them. I think they're adorable. But I was always more interested sort of in the relationship between Snow and the Queen. So I didn't really know what I was going to do with them. So I started doing a lot of mythological um, research on dwarves. And something that really caught my attention is that um, in certain mythologies, dwarves were considered to be the gatekeepers between worlds. And that really struck my imagination. And so I was sort of like, if I were snow and I were lost in a forest and I came upon this cottage, who would I want to meet and spend my time with? And then 
all of a sudden, <laughs> these characters just like showed up in my brain being like, we're here and you have to write us. And it was mm -hmm. the idea, it was very connected to sort of, I guess, Celtic mythology and even sort of the idea that fairies and elves were sort of like fallen angels or what, not fallen angels, but like there, there was a connection in Christian religion as well with the idea that they were the incarnation of certain angels on earth was this idea that fairies were also sort of gatekeepers and that they were elemental spirits. Mm -hmm. And they, these like the 12 fairies just showed up in my head. Um, especially the character shadow who in, the spindle is in a female guise as Nor, and their siblings who were slowly being, I guess in sort of an American gods kind of way, were slowly being forgotten and disappearing from the world. And this is now a mythology that has shown up in multiple pieces of mine. It's obviously very prevalent in the spindle. Um, you could sort of think of the spindle as a prequel to Snow in a way. Okay. It's in Snow. Another novel of mine that's a whole other thing that's going to be published, Blank Page. Some of these characters show up in a blank page too. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of got these fairies and then this giant plot hole. And I was like, well, what if the dark fairy was not just like, a mean fairy what if they were just the fairy of elements of the human experience that we tend to not like so what if she was the fairy of death and the whole story just sort of showed up and that's sort of what i wanted to explore about the human condition and the elemental things about being human that we tend to sort of forget and then that tied into this plot hole with um, sleeping beauty that i'd always had questions about just sort of led me to explore the piece from that end. And I kind of wanted to write a story that whatever version of Sleeping Beauty you love and are familiar with, whether it's Disney, whether it's the ballet, whether it's canon movie tales or fairy tale theater, that you could feel like this is the origin where all of those then sprung out from. So I guess in 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 a long-winded way, that's sort of where a lot of elements came to play of my writing this story. That's amazing. Also, because I think we're at a point where people are really willing to take in kind of the dichotomy of the deepness of a character. And while we maybe in the past had gone, no, that person is a god of the underworld, or this person is a purveyor of death, they must be evil. And it's like, right. no, they are a being who is serving a purpose mm -hmm. that, you know, we think of death as something that's particularly steals people from this world and, and ends, ends life early. And it's like, no, if you, it kind of in that cosmic way, especially if it's this idea that somebody's ferrying or somebody's there, that they, mm -hmm. a person's time comes to an end mm -hmm. and someone must be there to welcome them to the other side. Yeah. So it's like, no, they're not evil necessarily. I mean, at Disney, I guess, tried to play with that a little bit with Maleficent for, for whatever, because they've decided to do this with the live actions now. But a lot of people have been, you know, trying to answer those questions or even seeing it with like Loki in Marvel, like, right. you know. It's, it's a thing that I think people are finally welcome to because there is this idea that people love villains more than I think they like the heroes a lot of yeah. times. And so what happens when they're not actually a villain or serving a grander purpose I love now? Well, let me let me also, though, just say I do think that there are times when a villain just needs to kind of be a villain. And it's one yes. of the things I love about Maleficent. Like it is so unapologetic. She calls herself the mistress of all mm -hmm. evil and calls on the powers of hell. It's like, there you go. Like sometimes still evil. Yeah. we just need a great villain. I do think I am, a, I'm not the biggest fan of sort of this post wicked. We need to make 
every villain actually this Mm -hmm. wonderful hero that was just misunderstood. And one of the things I think works so, I I was a fan of the novel Wicked before Mm -hmm. I, you know, fell in love with the musical. But one of the things I love about what Gregory Maguire did is he was not trying to say, oh, Elphaba's actually like a really, really good person. She was just misunderstood. It's, she was a good person. And then she went on to make some very bad choices and here are the reasons for it, but we're not trying to say that she's this perfect innocent. And I feel like we've now swung to, I mean, everything from the movie Maleficent to like Cruella of like, sometimes we just got to let a villain be a villain. And so the difference with Spindle is nor the dark fairy has never been a villain. Mm -hmm. She's just representing those things that we are kind of very scared of as people. And she has to sort of deal with, with that and those those elements i love that and you, i mean you are correct also because like if the villains are often not truly villains then who is the villain like yeah. there's got like there's got to be something I mean, but we're also at a time where disney doesn't even want to give us a villain in most stories anymore we are right. our own worst villains and i was like okay that's you're doing this for a decade now this is not really working and it's like i don't really care yeah. about what gaston did before beauty and the beast i don't need a miniseries <laughs> about it right I don't, I don't need to know so but you did say something in the description which i love is you gave us a moment in time Mm-hmm. And setting setting things within a century or 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 a specific moment in time, a, pers- a specific movement. It's something that I always like to do as a designer when I'm working mm-hmm. on a piece of theater, as a director. I always like to sit and make sure that we know what moment in time we're rooted in for the importance of visuals, research, art, design, those kinds yeah. of things. So when you were picking a moment in time for this, what was the kind of important things that you were trying to suss out in figuring out when and where this story actually took place? Well, I knew that it was going to be rooted in the Celtic world. And so I pretty quickly decided I wanted it. I mean, this is what's sort of concurrent with the Arthurian um, mythic elements that make their way into the story. I wanted it to be the period where Christianity was sort of coming in and Mm -hmm. um, derailing a lot of the Celtic religions. Um, Because if the fairies are starting to be forgotten, and some of that is because, you know, one of the ideas sort of in the in the piece is, you know, humans to a degree kind of want to be the gods of the universe. Um, but some of it is that the actual, you know, religions of the time were being attacked. Um, the mere fact that um, that the princess, even in the original story, has a christening, but fairies are present at it. I mean, this is where my nerdiness comes in. The mere fact that it's called a christening sets it in a certain time, like, locale, but then fairies show up at it. So that sort of dichotomy was just sort of something I just thought it was, it was a a good and helpful setting to, to accentuate some of the tension in this world that was already going on. Perfect. I love that. Oh man. I just, I, there's something so interesting that I love about putting things in moments of time because it reminds us that there is magic in different ways in our world even if we you know we're we're living yeah. in a point where i feel like i mean people are gonna yell because i always love looking for those youtube videos of like look we found a fairy in our garden and i was like you better not put that on video and don't give it your name because it's not gonna end up well <laughs> yeah. for you yeah or if you find the little ring of toadstools don't go inside it you yeah don't go inside it yeah but i think 
it's those moments of time of kind of giving us that idea. It's it's such a beautiful departure for me in like, oh, there's still a version of our world we can live in and our histories mm-hmm. and our moments that still because it's like secretly, do I want to get to the other side and find out that the magic was there the whole time? Yeah. And I want to get it because then I could be like, yo, I'm right, bro. But yeah. <laughs> I just I I also think it's so wonderful that like after after the, the grand pandemic and things that like to have these kind of moments of magic and and these world building moments i think is so important to what everyone mm-hmm. needs and but that's also very much in the realm that you work in which i yeah which i absolutely i mean absolutely the other thing i wanted to be careful of i find a lot of sleeping beauty adaptations don't really acknowledge the fact that a hundred years goes by mm-hmm. while she's asleep I, matthew bourne is kind of one of matthew bourne and Catherine Boulier are kind of the only ones that really take that into account which is a whole other story that would be really fascinating to look at but i also wanted to set it at a period where certainly a lot would change during that hundred years but like pre-industrial revolution it's not like she was going to wake up and airplanes were a thing right you know right. um so i didn't want it to go through that much of a change but also if we're going through my mythology it takes place before the events of snow and and also the idea that you know the things that are important to humanity and th- the idea of the fairies or the angels or whatnot are universal regardless of what culture we're in what specific religion we're in or whatnot and it just seemed like the perfect um conglomeration of all those things to put it right there so you're already building quite the multiverse for yourself which i love <laughs> apparently i didn't intend to but these fairies just like i don't know they keep showing up and i i enjoy writing them so I mean, it's something that like, so I very much the amateur writer, I think I'm terrible at it, but I do it anyway. And so like, when I was putting together Inklings two years ago, I had this just kind of like writing through October as a thing to do. I had this kind of fairy character that kept showing up in my mind and Mm -hmm. kept being there. And sometimes I would read my prompt for the day and go, oh, the Paisley coat needs to come back. I like, Mm -hmm. I know exactly I know, I know this person. And it's so, it's, it's always one of those things that when, when it comes and you have to get it out, I I love kind of having these things that are connected and are living inside of you. But it also, I feel like it also shows me that like, when I feel like I have a deja vu moment, I feel like my life is going in the right way. But when I'm Mm -hmm. thinking of like a new story or a new character, but then an old character pops up that could interact with that person Mm -hmm. i feel like my creative mind and creative soul are going in in the right yeah the right space what are some challenges as kind of a artist purveyor writer when you're looking at kind of using some of these well-known stories or kind of the princess stories the old fairy tale Mm -hmm. stories what are some of the challenges you have that you you have to kind of come over being a contemporary writer when approaching these stories today? Um, it's a great question. And ironically, I don't think I'm going to have necessarily greatest answer. Yeah, I, totally I, <laughs> I, I don't feel necessarily any specific pressure because I mean, these stories are so much a part of me and I have such a deep love for them that I, when I get a story that I need to tell, I feel like that's the story that I need to tell. I think the only thing that I was aware of now, I, the whole idea of true love's kiss and the controversy that that exists in, in our culture, which was very largely Disney created. I mean, if you go back to these original stories, true love's kiss was not the thing waking these people up most of the time, almost 
any of the time. Um, so in, in, well, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but, um, in, in my story and in my mind, the idea of like a stranger coming along and like just kissing someone in the way that people have issue with today. I just, I, I, that was, that's not a part of the story. And I just wanted to make sure I was just careful that I was clear about the language of that when I was writing. But other than that, it's, I don't know, for me, it's more, I feel this real passion for reminding people of what these stories are and why we originally told them and bringing it back to that. So I don't know. I just sort of feel like I have the story I need to tell and I'm going to do that. And I'm not super focused on, you know, what I, what I should be saying as a contemporary person per se, because I'm also adapting things that are, you know, mm-hmm. much more old and ancient and whatnot. So then that leads me to another question. Cause you and I have been, we've got a, a budding little project coming that yeah. I roped you into and then have been delaying, but so the princess stories continue to be adapted over and over and over mm-hmm. again, but there we've really seen the need to, and I say we, as in the, yeah. the universal, we, yeah, the need to modernize everything and tell right. modern versions of stories. Why do you, why do you think there is that draw to modernize a princess or fairy tale story and make it work contextually in our world? Yeah. And where do you think a lot of the adaptations go wrong? Sure. Um, I'm probably, there's probably going to be a lot of controversy in what I have to say, but I've thought about it a lot. Um, So I think that, first of all, one of the things that's great about fairy tales is they can be adapted a million and one different ways. They're almost like a Rorschach test and all of the adaptations are valid and we should be checking all of them out. I... First of all, I, I am very aware that I was an unusual child and that the way that I read and saw fairy tales and my interpretation of them was not the way everybody might. So, for example, the idea of a man is going to come save you was never what I got from a single fairy tale I read or Disney movie or anything. They exist in a somewhat metaphoric place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, since like even Cinderella, like the prince was never literally meant to be a literal prince. Mm-hmm. He was meant to be a metaphoric representation for God. Mm-hmm. And if you read the story in that sense, it's a whole other kind of a thing. And to be honest, I found that most young people are very aware of reading the stories from a metaphoric place. Again, I certainly don't want to make a, a, a blanket statement about anything, I found that most of the call to like modernize the stories and put a specific spin tends to come from adults Mm -hmm. who maybe haven't watched these in a while or haven't read them in a while and are taking the story at a very literal face value place. I mean, if you look at, at Sleeping Beauty as the story, well, first of all, the truly original story that like even the really, really original one that involves, sorry, trigger warning for some, bad things. It involves rape. It involves murder. It involves a lot of really terrible things. Um, but if you, if you go, if you take the version that we generally know literally at face value about a girl who falls asleep and then a prince shows up and kisses her and wakes her up, I think that there are, you know, adults that are like, well, you know, guys shouldn't be going around and kissing unconscious women. And uh, absolutely 110%, they should never, ever be doing that. 
But I think that there's a context to some of these stories that's different. Um, I think there's a metaphor to some of these stories. And I think that the big push to take everything literal and to make it literally appropriate in the context of modern day is 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 kind of to some degree and I'm not, and I'm not saying that those stories and adaptations shouldn't exist I'm saying that they should be one of many adaptations that we look at um but I think I think it's 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 kind of making them not fairy tales anymore and yeah, I think I think that there just maybe should be some some closer reading of some of these things. And I don't mean that as a criticism of anybody who had a negative experience with any of this and certainly doesn't want negative ideas passed on. I don't either. But it's sort of like if we need to well, it's part it's one of the things that my play Snow is about about what are both the positives and major dangers of adapting things to make them more palatable to children because in the truth is in every era there has been a different idea of what is acceptable or what children should be hearing. In the Victorian era, it was like, we need to stick an easy moral onto these stories, which is where we get a lot of the negative ideas about certain fairy tales from because they were deliberately editing them. And there can there can be drawbacks to that too. Like the push to, to not have kids ever read anything that is scary or looks at the complexities of a, a very dark world that we live in. Now, I was also a very sensitive child. I'm not saying that kids should just be handed this material Absolutely. by any means. I mean, knowing the child and with intelligence and working with them that, you know, not ever being exposed to the negative sides of, of life is not necessarily the best thing or equipping mm-hmm. children in the best way. Uh, making everything being read in a literal sense as opposed to allowing imagination and metaphor to take over. I mean, that's what's so beautiful about the work of George MacDonald or even Madeline Lingle and C.S. Lewis. So I don't know if any of that was really cognizant or coherent or made much sense, but I think it's it. these adaptations are coming from a place of we need to make everything very literal as if they were literally happening in the real world. And I do think that there's some some problems and some danger with that. Yeah, I think also because once you've got the same story, because, you know, there's, you know, in musical theater, we're looking right now, it seems there is a rotating door of Cinderella's that are happening. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. literally Weber's Cinderella just closed. Yeah. The Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella mm-hmm. is about to open again on the West End. Yeah. I feel like we just had Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella closed yeah. and we are now getting the, you know, the rehashed Bad Cinderella. Bad Cinderella. They Which is its do. official name now, Bad Cinderella. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. That was just a joke uh, before, but now it is the literal. You know, it, maybe it just proves that there's young people on that marketing team and it is being self-aware. Uh, mm. But that is, not, that is not what this is about. But it is. Do, it just do you want to like know a little is... interesting piece of trivia about please. that opening song? Yes, please. Um, so in the opening song of Bad Cinderella, um, the chorus is, you know, like, call me Bad Cinderella, da, da, da. It's the same notes as in my own little corner from the Rodgers and Hammerstein to of a different course. rhythm. I love that. I mean, or not quite also, the same notes, but it's an homage yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah, melodically. And that also Weber is just a big musical theater nerd himself. Like he's a big old nerd. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, that does make sense though. Controversy is still controversy. But, you know, so I think there is always kind of this idea of how we are adapting things. And I think there are 
people that have done it well and have done it correctly when even you're looking at like I always go back to I think a Cinderella story is Mm -hmm. a really interesting and well thought out way of how do we contextualize what Cinderella would be well that was 2004 I was almost in that movie side note I love that movie. <laughs> I was I I was up for actually being one of the water ballet doubles in that. I had like a whole audition. It was the Warner Brothers and like Esther Williams Old Pool. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. Uh, well, and that's that's <laughs> as a film person myself, I just I I love to see those kind of little history things where they're like, yeah. oh my God, this is actually really iconic scene where this thing happened. Yeah. Now, now we are kind of at a precipice of like a lot of things are getting revivals and kind of getting reapproached and um, universal for a long time has like really leaned into this idea of universal monsters. And mm-hmm. for me, the idea of the classic literature monsters is, is just as kind of a rich and vibrant world as yeah. the fairy tale world is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that's uh, if you this is just you as a fan and you as a person i know for me personally uh that tom cruise the mummy did not do well and that was supposed to be universal kind of relaunching the dark universe relaunching universal monsters yeah what is there something else that you're a fan of a fandom a a a bit of literature or something that you would love to see maybe a departure from all of this fairy tale focus and maybe moving focus over to something else, just as your own yourself as a fan, as somebody that takes in media. You mean, would I, would I want to mess around with it personally? Whether you t- personally messing around with it or just <laughs> that you would want to take in, that you would want to see someone else maybe take on. Well, just I have, I have to say, um, and I guess this is similar to, to fairy tales. I really do wish that people would go back to the original sources because I feel like we're playing this giant game of telephone where like with fairy tales, we, we sort of take Disney movies as the baseline now mm-hmm. and then adapt things based on that. And I feel like it's the same thing with the monster movies. Frankenstein is one of my favorite novels mm-hmm. and um, the National Theater's adaptation, theatrical <sighs> adaptation of it um, with Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch is one of the so good. one of the greatest so theatrical good. experiences I've ever seen in my life. Anytime it's being reshown at um, through National Theater Live, I go and see it. There was one Halloween when I watched both versions back to back in like mm-hmm. a six hour mm-hmm. marathon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the thing that is so great about that to me is it is an adaptation of the novel. And what is so brilliant about that is it's it's also kind of spiritual in a way. It's it's um it's the first real like science fiction novel and it mm-hmm. it deals with science ethics and the point of it is we can't play god especially if we are not ready to take responsibility for our creations i mean the the creature his name's not frank and frankenstein is the is the person is the scientist the, the doctor the doctor the creature is what we think of as the monster mm-hmm. who is verbal is very intelligent, has some of the most beautiful speeches in literature. And the entire reason that the creature does anything bad is because they've been abandoned by their creator and they have no recourse in the world. And it's brilliant. And Dracula, if you go back and read the original Dracula, what I think a lot of people lose sight of is what, I mean, we're so obsessed now with like true crime and Mm -hmm. all that. Dracula was the very first thing that was written in such a way that it was meant to seem like it was just um, a dossier of a true crime 
incident. And now we take it for granted. It's a very common thing to do. But that novel was written as if that whole incident actually happened. And it's just a combination of journal entries and newspaper articles. And there were people who literally thought that it was real when it mm -hmm. came out. And it's genius. And I, I think that those stories are classics for a reason. And I would really love to see just some more really true adaptations going back to the root of the source material. And I think if you're, if you're going to adapt the classic monster movies of like the thirties, um, they're so in the public consciousness now that I think, I think it might be interesting to do adaptations that included sort of the history of how those movies were created and getting into some Bela Lugosi and, um, absolutely. And icon, you know, a true icon yeah. with film. Yeah, absolutely. Cause part of the reason that those movies were the way they were is film was still a pretty new medium at the time. Mm -hmm. And even sound was relatively new. So, you know, that's the reason that they were adapted the way that they were, but we, and you know, stories and not forgetting stories is so important to me. I really just would wish that we not throw the baby out with the bathwater and include what made those stories great in the first place, as opposed to just spending millions of dollars on what ultimately is kind of light fare that's going to be disposable. And it's going to get a lot of people to go out opening weekend and then nobody will remember it. So, you know, what I always said was I really would love it if they could contextualize a new monsters universe where Lagose is actually a descendant of Van Helsing mm. or someone connected. And he's telling the stories of his family mm. that he is, that has been collected to just kind of give that idea. But also like for my side of the industry, like, like they created mm -hmm. special effects makeup. Yeah. Like they, yeah. You know, like, and that is when the original Ben Nye, like the, the owner creator, mm -hmm. the original mind yep. of Ben Nye came about. And it's, it's all of these amazing moments that those films are so important because we only have a contemporary industry because yeah. of it. And that's why I always get sad when we get like a new monster movie or a horror element and almost nothing is done with practical effects because it was like, yeah. listen, that's what makes horror incredible. So well, like, that's one of the reasons I love Guillermo movies. del Toro. Guillermo del Toro is like my favorite <laughs> filmmaker of all time. And Pan's Labyrinth is my favorite film. And yeah, of course, you're going to use, you know, digital effects as you can. But I mean, I think what Guillermo del Toro is doing is the closest to the genius that was happening in the 30s as we mm -hmm. have gotten in modern day. And it's a shame any anytime a studio isn't willing to spend the money on a del Toro movie because I was like, listen, you're going to make that money back. It's like Dis Disney literally still deciding to never do his Haunted Mansion movie is a crime. Yeah. Also, because he is the biggest Haunted Mansion fan in the world. Yeah. He, he has a Hatbox Coast in his library. Yep. Like I would <laughs> I would love to see Guillermo del Toro's adaptation of The Spindle. I feel like it would be right up his alley. Let's just I, I yeah, yeah, I would love to see him explore more in that world of the Fae and fantasy mm -hmm. and like your also because I think your tone would fit well with someone like him. Mm -hmm. Also, I, I texted this to you last night when we were talking. I always love reading my friends' writing as they're like being published because like you and I have known each other for over a yeah. decade now. Oh Actually, gosh, yeah. it's been two thousand yeah, fifteen years that you and wow. I have known each other. And yeah. I it's even in certain moments I was like, I can hear you in this. And it's just yeah. I love that because it is the authenticness of an artist's voice. Well, thank which, you. Of course, which I just really loved. And of course, you're also one of the hardest working people I know. So just <laughs> seeing you. 
hard work pay off and kind of the the true not like toxic hustle culture but like the actual Mm -hmm. idea of hustle culture and writing a book is a whole other thing it's been really interesting um to go into i mean one of it's funny because a lot of people ask me questions about like you know, how did, how did you, you know, it's so much, how did you write all that and whatnot? I mean, yes, it's, it's definitely a lot. And you kind of have to think of it as a chapter at a time, because if you think about how much you actually have to write, it's a lot, but I'm also a fast writer. I mean, I write a play in an average of like nine days. Mm -hmm. The thing that was actually the hardest for me moving into the novel writing world is when you're writing a play or a musical or a film, you can carve out an afternoon and you can read it from beginning to end. You can do a table read. You can get actors in and you can get the full arc. You can't read a novel from beginning to end without stopping, Mm-mm. even in your best attempts to do it. And so things like that were a really interesting adjustment of wanting to make sure the the arc from beginning to end was still really solid, but kind of only being able to take little pieces at a time and, and things like that. So, Did you learn anything interesting about yourself through this process that maybe you hadn't learned before when writing plays and putting up plays and in that kind of thing I'm rambling today sorry (laughs) no um I don't I don't know it was more I I really wanted to challenge myself I always want to challenge myself as an artist and I want to get better and I sort of felt like even if it turns out I'm not great at the novel writing, it will help me improve as a writer in other areas. I think what was fun, and especially that I worked so much on it during the pandemic when everything was shut down, is you kind of get to be everyone. You get to be all the characters and the set designer and the costume designer, and you have an unlimited special effects budget. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the diametric opposite of a play in the sense that what I love about the theater and film and TV is it is people live in a room together collaboratively creating this thing. And in the theater, unless it's being filmed for archival purposes, it then only exists in the memories of the people that were there. And a novel is the diametric opposite. It's, I mean, yes, you are working with wonderful editors and publishers and stuff, but when you're first doing it, it is one person alone in a room being everyone. And then you create the definitive thing that's never gonna change, which that was also kind of really scary too. And then you send it out in the world and people can literally hold it and it will always exist in that form. And so it was, for me, it almost just sort of felt like cross training as an mm-hmm. artist. And it's, it, I feel so blessed and lucky that I, I have a, an art and a craft that I can do anywhere, anytime. But I also really miss being in a room live with people and, and doing that because that's really my comfort zone. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was more like just sort of stretching those other muscles and, um, yeah, it was, it was really fun to get to do. But I also have learned that anything that I learned from working on another project will heavily, like, positively affect the work that I do in all kind of aspects of my, yeah. mm-hmm. in my life. So, you know, all things to move forward. Now, I know you've mentioned, but you name dropped it once, another project you have coming up called Blank Page, which Blank Page. I have a little connection with you. Yes, with you from, do. From years ago. Yeah describe just as much as you want to just describe a little bit of that and how the ideas of like spindle and snow fit within that world as well. Sure. Well, blank page, um, was an idea that I have had for forever. And 
I took it to some friends and we originally started developing it as a web series that then turned into a pilot that um, has gotten some attention. And I'm hoping something moves forward with that. But in the meantime, I was like, I feel like just what at least the beginning of this story is needs to exist in a form and it's very literary based. So it worked well as a novel, but the basic premise is it takes place in an ethereal bookstore where all of the employees are fictional characters who haven't been written yet. And they have to live this purgatory like existence tending to the literary canon until their author shows up to claim them. And into this world, a new character shows up named Paige, who is the first character ever to know nothing about herself. She doesn't know her genre. She doesn't know her story. And it causes the rules of the world to sort of fall into a tailspin as all these characters start to question how much control they actually have over their own lives. And the piece as a whole is very much about fate versus free will. And yeah, so that's, it's very close to my heart. It's very special to me. I can't wait to come back and talk to you more when that's out on the shelves. But the, I think a lot of the things that I write very much deal with deeper issues of the human condition and, you know, things like fate versus free will and, you know, identity. And with the connection with Spindle and Snow, there are just some, well, blank page goes in and out of the worlds of a lot of literature, um, sort of similarly to the holodeck and Star Trek, they can go into the worlds of different books and, there were just characters that started showing up and had things to say. And I suddenly realized that, you know, like the fairy of death is everywhere and things like that sort of weave in it. There's a, there's a stronger connection, which I can't say because it will of give course, away a, a very course. big plot point, but um, yeah, I tend to deal with pieces that have mythic themes and, and stuff like that. I don't tend to write traditional romances. That's one of the interesting things about Spindle is it is not going where you think it's going in terms of a romantic story. And yeah, I just, those are the things that seem to come out of me and um, interweave in the kinds of stories that I love to tell. And I'm so glad that it's finally like everybody's going to be able to see it because Blank Page is a very, very special story to me. I it's you you were pitching it to me as we were sitting on the floor folding t-shirts and yeah I was obsessed from that moment but as we're wrapping up for for anyone who takes in and reads Spindle what it what are you hoping they walk away with from the story um I hope that this is, it's going to sound very erudite but I hope that it connects people to the deeper things about the human condition. I mean, I think that in our, our world, it's very easy to get distracted by appearances and the thing, the life that we're supposed to look like we're leading. And we don't really sit around and talk about, you know, these deeper human experiences and the fact that there are things bigger than us. And the fact that Real, I mean, to quote, you know, Hans Christian Andersen, that the real life is the, well, I'm, he said life itself is the most wonderful fairy tale. And I feel that that's really true. And I hope that it will connect you to how much your life and our own lives are a fairy. And in the deeper sense, I feel like the idea of being a fairy tale has taken on this connotation of, oh, happily ever after and everything's perfect. And I mean it in the sense that 
things matter, that our stories matter, that the things we know are important in the world will always be there and will always sort of out as it were. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in terms, in terms of, of the meaning, you know, if you really go back to the original fairy tales, I don't think there's a single one that anybody sort of rightfully would ever want to live in, even at the endings, (laughs) but they're important and they're like what our lives are. And that a story, I talk about this in page two, that there's no story worth its salt. That's like, so-and-so was born and their life was perfect and they were perfect and they were always happy. Like the end, like, yeah, I think theoretically we'd all love to live in a story like that, but they're not the stories that matter. And there's a reason for that. And I hope that this connects sort of connects to that. Perfect. Well, after all of this, please tell them where they can find the spindle. Mm-hmm. Well, the easiest place is probably to go on Amazon and you can get it in paperback, in hardcover, or as an ebook. Um, I'm currently working on the audiobook. I actually recorded the first like chapter and a half this morning before this lovely interview, which yes. was fun. And so that's probably the easiest place. And if you if you like it, please leave a review. Please recommend it. One of the things that's been super exciting is a lot of my work tends to be very dark. And while this piece, you know, is grounded in a reality it's it's appropriate for most ages and i actually just found out it's being taught in some of the fifth grade classrooms in new york public schools right now and there's some other teachers that are interested in teaching it so it's it's a piece you can sort of share with everyone christmas is not too far away nor is hanukkah or kwanzaa all of them makes a great gift and yeah so Check it, check it out on Amazon. Get a copy. If I see you, I will sign it for you. And um, yeah, I, I hope you, I hope everyone enjoys it. And there's also more information on, on things. I'm on social media. I also have a YouTube channel and I document some of my journey of how I got a publishing deal, you know, how all that works, you know, the book trailer, things like that. And also theatrical things um, mm-hmm. from deep dives to diving into other practical things and whatnot. So come come subscribe on there and there's, there's more information there as well. And would love to hear from you and and what you think. And I hope everybody enjoys it. It's an unusual, it's an unusual take and it was an unusual or a challenging process being published because a lot of people wanted to push it more in the, for lack of a better description, I don't mean this, this is not a criticism. It's just Mm -hmm. discussing different books in the genre, more to like a court of thorn and roses place or Mm. a care of all place which lovely books, but this is more of a George MacDonald wrinkle in time, never ending story kind of a thing. And those books kind of aren't out there as much anymore. There haven't been as many like that. So I'm really honored to be thrown into that category and I hope you enjoy it. That's amazing. Well, and uh, coming out as a bonus episode with this today separately is my review of The Spindle. I am excited for everybody to hear what I think and also geek out about it because I already love what I have read of it already. Yeah. So I'm so curious what you think of all the fairies because they were so fun to write and I feel like you'd, you'd enjoy them. 
also the moment because what I love that you do in the beginning of the book is it is a we get a nice detailed mm -hmm. list of who all the characters are what how to how they're interacting and that was really yeah. as someone with like ADHD that mm -hmm. was really great to go back to that to remind mm -hmm. me, to have that to go back to but also look forward to who each of those characters were because I mm -hmm. love kind of an auxiliary gallery of lots of fairies and fae and so I'm excited yeah. to let everyone know but Ashley thank you so much for being on the show I appreciate thank you for it. having me it's always such a joy to get to talk to you and thank you so much for having me on your show hey nerf herders you sure you want to go with that hey everyone there we go more inviting have you ever had a movie that you really wanted to love but something holds you back or one that you did love in spite of a flaw? Well, I'm Casey. And I'm Sam Alisea. And on Another Pass, we sit down with cool guests to look at movies that we find fascinating. But flawed. And we try to imagine what could have been done when they were made to give them that little push. We're not experts. We just believe in criticism. Uh, constructive criticism. Sure. So come take Another Pass at some movies with us. And every now and then, we can celebrate movies that did it on their own, too. You can find us at certainpov.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Pass it on. Saturday Morning Confidential is brought to you by Dreamer Productions and is a proud member of the Certain POV Podcast Network. You can find us on Facebook at Saturday Morning Confidential, on Instagram at SMC Pod, and on Twitter at The SMC Podcast. You can find all the shows that Certain POV has to offer at CertainPOV.com or also on Patreon at Dreamer Productions, where your donation of only $2 a month keeps constant programming coming in and supporting our new shows as we go throughout 2022. Now join us again next time for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.